Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 19th, 2023. I've been away for a few days at DLD in Munich, imagining uh, the future of the world when it comes to technology. But you don't have to go to fancy tech conferences to learn about it. You can look at the Internet. The Internet has lots of news about the future of tech and of science fiction or science fiction increasingly becoming real. Um, there's a Chinese rover now up on Mars, uh, and this idea of exploring and perhaps colonizing space is becoming increasingly real. Um, a new nuclear rocket designed to send missions to Mars um, is being developed, in, uh, which will allow us to go backwards and forwards to Mars in just 45 days. That's much less time than it took the English to get backwards and forwards to America. Uh, NASA um, has developed its own Mars exploration program. Um, and Ashley Vance is coming out uh, with an interesting book. He wrote the original book on Elon Musk, coming out with a book later this year. is going to be on the show called When the Heavens Went on Sale. Um, it's both about uh, SpaceX, uh, Musk's private space uh, business and of course Jeff Bezos' uh, Blue Origin. So it seems as if Mars, the so-called red planet, now is becoming increasingly central in our vision of how we're going to change or perhaps colonize the universe. And it's particularly appropriate today because my guest on the show is Justin Hollander, who's a professor at Tufts University. Uh, he's an expert on urban design, and he has a new book out, and it gets out in the next few days. It's called The First City on Mars, An Urban Planner's Guide to Settling the Red Planet. Um, Justin is joining us, not from the red planet, but from the nearest thing we have on Earth, which is uh, the suburbs of Massachusetts. Justin, welcome. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Nice to meet you. So how seriously, Justin, you, you're smiling rather... I don't know whether it's coyly or sheepishly. Um, how seriously should we take this idea? Is this a serious book, The First City on Mars? Yeah, well, it is a serious book. The um, examples that you just rattled off, there, there is a lot of real movement within our society and globally to land on Mars, bring people there. And there's actually quite a lot of popular support for this idea. So... Once people start arriving there, there is a genuine problem, which is that despite all the planning, none of the people involved know anything about urban planning. They don't know anything about human settlements. They're, they're physicists, astronauts, engineers, scientists, and that's great. And that's going to help us get there. But, um, but I, um, I took on this serious uh, enterprise of writing this book to kind of think through what, what is it that urban planning might be able to offer as a discipline to um, prepare, prepare us for what is likely to be eventually a human settlement on Mars. You're not alone, Justin. One is never alone in these things. Um, lots of other urban developers and science fiction enthusiasts are imagining plans for the very first city on Mars, one that's called NUA, seeking to become the first uh, 
sustainable city on Mars with a million residents. So this is attracting quite a lot of attention. Um, to what extent can we learn from history? I, I mentioned the fact that I don't remember how, how many uh, weeks or months it took um, the original uh, Mayflower to get from England to North America, but now apparently we may be able to get to Mars in 45 days. How much can we learn from the history of earthly colonization about cities? Yeah, so I think we can learn a lot. And, you know, certainly the experience of, of Europe colonizing the Americas is, um, offers a lot of lessons and a, a lot of uh, scary lessons. There's a lot of uh, awful things that happen with that. But, but there's also the colonization of the Mediterranean region by the Greeks and the Romans, the colonization of Asia by the Chinese. We, we, have, we have a lot of different periods throughout human history where there has been a society and then they've reached out and gone far, far from their home base to, to, to conquer new lands. So when, when this has happened historically, it's worth interrogating, well, how do they go about it? And, and that is one thing that I did in the book. I have a chapter where I, I went through the history um, of uh, about four different epics in human history of when a colonizing power went out and, and, and did just that. And we have a, we have a lot we can learn from, from those experiences, the, the, the lessons around what the appropriate location for these colonies. What, what kind of considerations are there being close to a, a source of water, being close to mines? Um, we also learn about transportation, questions about access and mobility and architecture and the urban design, the layout of buildings, the layout of, of uh, public spaces. All of these things that, that people have done throughout human history, uh, we can learn about those and then try to apply those lessons for moving forward. Whether it's whether it's on uh, on Mars or, or right here, Justin, um, there's no evidence so far, at least, that there's any life or certainly competitive life on Mars to humans. One of the distinguishing things about uh, the examples you give in your book is that usually, particularly in the North American or Mediterranean context, there were people there in the first place. Does that make a big difference in terms of designing cities? If indeed we, and I, when I use that word carefully, we humans one day show up, maybe not in the not too distant future on Mars in, and, and decide to build cities and we find no, no one there, does that make a big difference? Yeah, I think that um, the fact that there uh, likely won't be any, uh, anything similar to us, any humans, um, you know, certainly it does make a big difference. Um, but, you know, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, very famous science fiction writer, writer wrote a trilogy about Mars, and, and, and he really grappled a lot with this question, and I think in a way that has really moved the conversation, because he talks about this, this, this debate within the um, settler community around planetary preservation and, and how, import, how important is it to preserve what's there as is, whether it's, in this case, we're not talking about necessarily a, a lot of life forms, but, but certainly just as it is. And, um, and so I think that we still need to be aware of, of those ideas that, that Robinson introduced, but, um, but, but yeah, so certainly a, diff a different situation when you don't have a, a necessarily a large indigenous population. It's ironic, isn't it, Justin? On the one hand, um, we are, and then again, I use this word with a degree of care. 
we're fleeing the earth, or certainly people like Musk and Bezos and other tech billionaires are fleeing the earth because they fear we've destroyed it. So we find a substitute planet, Mars, which is unblemished, at least from human hands. Um, and, and then you're suggesting that we respect its environment uh, in, it, in our design. Firstly, that's not very likely. And also, isn't there a degree of kind of absurd hypocrisy there that we ruin our own planet and then we go to another <laughs> one and at least with the original intention of respecting it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you raised some really good questions. I mean, I, I certainly don't want to suggest that I'm like uh, advocating for um, any of this. I, I don't believe necessarily that um, it's a good thing that, that that people are going to be settling Mars. And I, and I don't necessarily think that we need to be um, preserving it any any special way. I think it's um, it is pretty absurd. But, you know, we are as a species um, explorers and people will continue to push forward and and i can uh i can agree with you that um that it's pretty pretty awful that that this is probably going to happen but um as an urban planner i feel like it's important that if it is going to happen that we be prepared and that we do it in a way that makes it as 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 safe as possible as comfortable and you know promotes uh, whatever kind of uh, community and social well-being that that's possible in such a environment. I have to say, I mean, I've been working on this book for a number of years, and I I can I, I so much more appreciate what we have here. Um, you know, the more I learn about how unpleasant and unwelcoming um, life on Mars would be. Uh, Justin. Um... I mentioned earlier this, the settling of North America by Europeans, uh, its colonization. Some of the colonizers and the sons and grandsons of the colonizers, like Thomas Jefferson, had a cult of the earth, of the countryside, rather than the city. Um, now, I, I don't suppose we'll be able to farm on Mars, whatever Hollywood tells us. <laughs> but why, why do we need cities? Why can't people just live on the land? If we have sophisticated enough technology to get us there, can't we all just live spread out on Mars? Maybe we don't want to live in cities. Maybe we're all Jeffersonians of one kind or another, at least when it comes to Mars. Well, I mean, I think, I think uh, history has judged Jefferson to be wrong. I mean, certainly, you know, the aesthetic of the country, I mean, I think we can all appreciate the beauty and the certain lifestyle, but look at the world population. We're an, we're an urban planet. Um, you know, that, that urbanization is something that we have discovered as humans um, is the best way for us to organize societies. And it, it gives us the kind of density, the kind of networks um, the kind of efficiencies that are not possible under Jefferson and his um, his ideals. So we have so 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 what you're saying is that living living outside cities on Mars, I assume there may be some practical element, but you just think it it's been proved to be not very what viable or attractive. People would be lonely. Yeah, I mean, I just think that that's, uh, that's just not how humans organize themselves well. We organize ourselves well in, in, in cities and that having that kind of uh, density of, of uses and attraction 
um, is where we're going to succeed. And when we don't do that, we, we fail. Justin, there's a lot of urban innovation in the world also. Um, I know the Saudis are planning their own uh, highly science fictional city, it's pouring billions, tens of billions, perhaps trillions of dollars into this. Um, what do you make of, of attempts like the Saudis to build entirely new cities on Earth? And what can we learn from what they're doing about the first city on Mars? Yeah, I mean, I think that the notion of uh, some sort of a utopia, new kind of city, whether it's on Earth or on Mars, um, is something that does definitely capture people's imagination. And since we are a growing planet, I think it's a good idea. I do think that we need to continue to, through thought, using thoughtful planning and the techniques of the plan, urban planning profession, that to be able to identify locations for future urbanization, make sure that they're laid out in a way that promotes health and well-being, safety, and make sure that they're connected. Right. But, but Justin, sure you're not asking, um, I, I take your point, but you're not answering my question. What, what are the Saudis doing and, and are they doing it right? Can we learn from what they're doing? In some ways, it doesn't seem to me as if what they're doing and what you're imagining on Mars is that different. Yeah, no, I mean, actually, I'm not that familiar with their plan, but what I do know, it's, uh, they call it the linear city. And I, th I think that in many ways it, it is sensible. You know, what they're talking about is, is really linking transportation and land use so that people will be able to get around using different types of public transit, um, as well as privately owned vehicles, um, and in a way that's really efficient, very high, high density. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that however, inefficient a particular plan might be, that, that one seems to have a, a lot going for it. And I think that we need to be thinking big picture, big, big planning uh, in order to be able to accommodate future, future growth of the human population on Earth. Justin, have you given a lot of thought to politics and democracy here? Of course, some of our earlier cities, particularly Athens, were built around the polis and the idea of citizen participation or some citizen participation. It seems as if these days the real innovators on cities tend to be technocratic and often authoritarian. I mentioned the Saudis, no great friends of democracy, or even Singapore, which has um, architected the smartest, the most livable city on earth but also is not a system that's particularly democratic. Um, given America's attachment, emotional and otherwise, to democracy, how important is this first city on, a, on Mars to, to be built around the idea or the ideal of democracy? I mean, on a personal level, I would, I would say that's super important. I mean, I, I, I would feel very strongly that that would be something if I was um, asked to be part of it. It's not a, a huge focus of the, of the book. Uh, the research that I did, I was really more like, looking at the, at the technical sides. But, you know, I think that when we do look at the history of colonization, it does tend to be very autocratic in, the, in terms of the kind of the origins of a, of a new plan the layout, the original, original uh, construction design process. Um, and yeah, so that is, of course, uh, you know, not ideal, but that, that has been kind of the historical method. In terms of kind of like day-to-day -day governance, um, I, th I think um, 
what I'm attracted to and, and people have written extensively about is the Antarctica model, um, you know, where the, the missions are, are largely driven by science, but that many countries kind of get together in a consortium of sorts where they, you're essentially on uh, soil that, that is related to that home country when you're in Antarctica. So, so all the kind of democratic rules might apply for, um, for the uh, McMurdo station, for example, the United States uh, base in Antarctica. But, you know, the Chinese settlement is going to, um, they're going to be subject to Chinese law and, and the dictatorship that, that operates there. So, so I think that um, we, we can bring, in the same way we brought to Antarctica, we can bring to Mars um, our systems and continue to, to keep those, those in place and intact. But to the extent that other countries also want to um, settle Mars, I think that that's, um, that's going to introduce that kind of um, uh, complicated picture. So your urban planner's guide to settling the red planet, what are the central, what, what would you imagine to be the, the central places? If it's not going to be a polis, are they going to be, as in American cities, a freeway or a shopping mall? Uh, or, or, or as in my city, San Francisco, uh, armies of homeless people. What, what, are the, what is the heart of, in, 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 in your theoretical vision, of course, what is the heart, the architectural heart of, or what should be the architectural heart of the first city on Mars? Yeah, I mean, I think that what we have seen, you know, you talk about the, the polis, the polis can be articulated through the public plaza and that uh, public plazas can be that kind of central organizing location for any kind of, whether it's economic or political or social activities or recreational. Um, so that's what, that is what um, I'm advocating for. And, and I did in the book uh, come up with an actual design and a template, if you will, of, of what that might look like. And you, know, you there can be different configurations, but they can, um, every reason to believe that, that uh, plants and trees can grow. So you could, you could furnish such a location with um, some hardscape, you know, like, uh, like bricks for the plaza, but you could also include trees and grass and uh, basketball courts and fountains. And you know, I mean, there, there's a lot that you could put in as long as it's kind of an indoor kind of pressurized uh, protected environment. So, so that's kind of what, how I imagine it that you, that we're going to replicate some of the, uh, public spaces in uh, on Earth that have endured, that continue to attract people for centuries, and um, and use those as a model. Uh, as you imply, Justin, there were there is no there may be life on Mars, but there is no oxygen on Mars. So, will this have to be an indoor city? And and how different would that be from just some huge shopping mall? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Montreal in the winter, but that's a that's an indoor city. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, and a lot of it is very much a, a shopping mall, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that uh, what I have read and studied in um, prognostics are that m much of life will have to be um, either underground or, or indoors um, in the early settlement of Mars. Uh, eventually, there is possible possibility that there could be some innovations. But at this point, yes, that is the idea. And that when people venture out, they will venture out. Um, there will be reasons to go. But, um, but most of life will happen in that kind of 
contained environment. So again, <laughs> I mean, I'm and not, the, I'm not gravity on Mars don't work. So we won't just be able, even if we had breathing equipment, we won't just be able to wander around. Yeah, it'll be very limited how much how much wandering a typical person could do. That's correct. Yeah. So it doesn't sound like a lot of fun, does it? <laughs> Why I mean, don't you not, follow the place? If we remember how how the original settlers fetishized North America, quite rightly in a sense of uh, of, a, of an agricultural cornucopia of, of fish and and and, and and cattle and all you can eat. Um, this is not, this is not uh, North America 2.0, is it? No, it's, it's very um, unwelcoming. And, and I um, definitely have the same feeling that you have, that this is not a place that I would necessarily want to go. But if you remember, this is maybe about five years ago, this nonprofit organization started in Mars One, and they decided that they were going to um, settle Mars and they were going to find some rockets and bring people. But the technological barriers were such that it was going to be a one way trip. So they actually put out a call and said, are you interested? And 200,000 people signed up. And I have actually I have a student in my, in my university and he told me that that if that call came out again, he would sign up. So, you know, people understand that this is not a welcoming environment. Um, but they want to go anyway, so we better be ready. <laughs> so the closest thing on Earth, maybe outside Saudi Arabia, would be human settlements in the Antarctic or in, or right, in the Arctic right. region. Now, I, I guess the Russians, they've got other things on their mind these days, but they probably have more experience of this than anyone. Yeah, and we can definitely learn a lot from these kinds of like cold weather, inclement climate zones um, and and that's something that I, I do talk a lot about in the book that um they call them winter cities they lean into they lean into mm -hmm. the but the, the thing about winter cities is there is summer the thing about montreal is eventually the sun comes out it rains um it snows how will the weather affect the first city on mars it, what kind of weather i i, I excuse the dim-wittedness of this question um justin but what kind of weather exists on Mars? Yeah, so the atmosphere is very light compared to what we have. So the, so the weather is very different. They, um, they do have all four seasons. And then if you're on the equator in the summer, it can get into the 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, winter at night <laughs> on the poles, you know, negative 200. So, you know, you have to be careful where you are. You're a little chilly. You're not going to go out in your underwear. Mars. <laughs> they have dust storms. This is a big problem, and and um, storms can last months, and um, almost almost zero visibility. But besides that, they don't. It doesn't rain. Doesn't snow. <laughs> um, there's no you know no. There's no clouds. You know they don't have the same kind of precipitation that we have here. So when you look up in the the heavens, when when if we're ever on Mars, um, of course we will think about the earth. Um, you mentioned the colonization of the Mediterranean, which was done with fetishizing Greek cities in particular. We've talked about European colonization of North America. The original North American cities were built as mirrors to European cities. What will this first city on Mars, what will its 
attitude, its 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 state of being be in the context of earthly cities? Will they be built uh, as reactions? Uh, will they be built in attempts to imitate London or New York or Singapore or Beijing? Yeah, wow. So this is uh, really such an important question. And that's actually one of the first chapters in the book, which is I introduce what I call first principles for, for thinking about this question. And it's, it's that we cannot just let some sort of abstract idea around style or design theory guide these decisions. We need to look inside the human brain. We need to design from the inside out and I've actually done a lot of research on Earth <laughs> about this, uh, this book I wrote, Cognitive Architecture. I wrote another book, Urban Experience and Design. And it's really about understanding how people experience the world around them on an intuitive basis, unconsciously, how are we responding? And, and so if you start with that, then you don't need to kind of get all caught up in the kind of the latest styles or ideas about you know, what it should be. You look at the Look at the science, and and then if you if you let that happen, that'll drive. And and what what the science has shown, and my own research has shown, is that a lot of what we call vernacular or traditional architecture and urban design is the kind of designs that people organically built over centuries, and that's what we're looking for. So yeah, Paris. I mean, not all of Paris, not Hausmann's Paris, but a lot of Paris, um, you know, really fits. Um, a lot of the kind of like older traditional communities um, throughout the planet um, have those kinds of elements that that we're kind of like designed to want to be in. And, and I think that's what we that's what we should we should seek out to try to build on Mars. Sure. In, in your view, and of course, this is all theoretical. Um, in your view, should every place and view on in this first city on Mars, should it have a view back to Earth? Should we recognize where we came from? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and this is a, a really important question to for the Martians to decide. <laughs> um, you know, in urban planning on Earth, we don't spend a lot of time uh, as planners telling people this is the kind of city you need to build. We we try to listen to them. We try to hear what what their concerns are, what their issues are, and 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 I would suggest that that would be appropriate. Um, you know, the people who are do this colonization, what do they want? Do they want to be <laughs> making that connection or do they want to be looking forward? And, and I think that's, uh, that's going to have to drive that, that question. The early history, of course, of America was bound up in privatization of American life. It was an odd relationship between the English state and the colonizers and then the rebellion against the state. Seem as if history, in in an odd way, is repeating itself. Uh, I mentioned Ashley Vance's new book, uh, "When the Heavens Went on Sale." Of course, the people buying it are people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos with their private companies, but NASA is in the running too. The American uh, state uh, institution bent on exploring Mars, coming from public funds. In your view, when it comes to this first city on Mars, should it be? founded, designed, financed by private money from Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or from state money from institutions like NASA? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to just look at the, the 
practical political position that that many of these governments are in and, and that they, they find it very hard to, to bankroll um, these kinds of endeavors. So, I mean, you know, you, I think that because of that, and this is why Elon Musk has been so successful, um, you know, private actors step up and, and that they're able to deliver. So, you know, I actually, I used to work for the federal government for a number of years and you know, we had a big focus on contracting and the reality was, and still is that, that sometimes these private for-profit actors can can do a better job of what, what we were doing in-house in the government. So, so that that's my personal opinion that I think that that is where it's gonna it's gonna go. But I think the government government agencies will continue to play a, play an important role. Well, it's really an interesting subject, Justin. I commend you for taking the risk of writing this book, The First City on Mars. I certainly guarantee you one thing. It's not the last book on The First City on Mars, first of many. Let's end with both a, a cheerful and less cheerful note. What do you most fear about this first city on Mars? What should we bo- most beware of? And then as a follow-up, what are you most excited by? Yeah, well, I guess uh, my, my biggest fear is that it's going to fail. Uh, kind of the Jamestown disaster where everybody dies. Um, so that would, you know, I mean, that's something that we have to grapple with in any kind of um, adventure, any kind of bold undertaking. Um, and so my hope is that that this kind of uh, book kind of helps contribute to the conversation and helps serve as a as a guide that that will make it safer. Um, yeah, I mean, hopeful. I'm I'm, I'm hopeful because. I think that the more that we have these conversations about Mars, I think the more we can appreciate on a day-to-day basis how wonderful the planet we have is and that we can appreciate life and we can appreciate our loved ones and our friends and our family. And I think that um, that's, it's been actually really a great thing for me being part of this, this project of writing this book, just, um, just uh, much more thankful for what, what I have today.